As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death. Um, Great to have you with us. Uh, As always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm joined as ever by my dad, John Wyatt. Hi, John. Hi, it's good to be here. And we're really excited to have a guest with us this week. Uh, We're really pleased to welcome Dr. Andrew Davison, who's the Starbridge Associate Professor in Theology and Natural Sciences at the University of Cambridge. Andrew, welcome. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about uh, what that means and your your work? Thank you very much for having me. I have this position in Cambridge in the Divinity Faculty, thinking about science from a theological perspective. I've been there about eight years now, and it's one of the relatively few permanent positions around the world in theology faculties thinking about science and it was endowed by an author that some of your listeners may know, Susan Howitch, who set it up about 30 years ago and unusually she named it after the fictional city in which her novels are set uh, rather than naming it after herself. So unless there's a Narnia chair or something like that (laughs) elsewhere in the world, I suppose I've probably got the only position named after a a fictional city or place. Amazing. And today uh, we're really excited to because we're going to be talking about um, space, cosmology, astrophysics. Um, could you just share a little bit about how you first got involved in that work and how that intersects with your theology? Well, I first got interested in cosmology and astrophysics through a set of conferences that were thinking about this central Christian and actually Abrahamic more widely uh, idea of creation out of nothing. The idea that everything about everything is created uh, by God. And I was asked to speak to that uh, at Oxford and then in Notre Dame in the States from a scientific perspective. So that got me interested in cosmology and the ideas of scientific accounts of the origins of things. But my thought tends to track more towards biology. And in the last six years or so, I've been looking at this combination of astrophysics and biology, sometimes called astrobiology, the capacity for the universe to support life and that really um, blossomed when I applied for a visiting position in Princeton which was a, a wonderful scheme funded by NASA amongst other people to think about the societal implications of astrobiology it was called uh, and most of us were, were theologians and I did nine months in Princeton on that topic and uh, since then have been writing a book on what the idea of life elsewhere in the universe might mean for Christian theology, which is now happily, safely with the publishers and should be out uh, later this year. So I, I continue to be interested in 
these questions, and more recently we might talk about this, there's a new centre in Cambridge on origins of life, which I'm playing a part in. And so I think this topic will feature in my thinking and writing for quite a uh, long time to come. Brilliant. Well, you're certainly the, the biggest theological brain we've had on matters of life and death so far. So we're really pleased to be able to kind of plumb into some of those deep thoughts you've been pondering in both in the States and here. Um, uh, to, the kind of peg for today it, it is we wanted to talk about um, the James Webb Space Telescope, which some listeners might be aware of. But if you're not, it's it's basically the successor to the quite famous Hubble Space Telescope. It's the most largest, most powerful telescope that's ever been made. And it was launched last year in December. And, and as we record this, we are now just a few days away from the first ever images being sent back to Earth and revealed from Webb. Uh, in fact, there's a countdown on the NASA website I'm looking at right now, and we are five days, five hours, 54 minutes and nine seconds, eight seconds, seven seconds away from the first images <laughs> ever been ever been released. It's a remarkable um, scientific achievement, and, and I've always had a, a sort of fascination with uh, astronomy and cosmology. In fact, um, when I initially started, uh, left school, I my idea was to become a cosmologist and I started studying physics um, for the first year at university and it was only uh, then that I had a kind of life crisis and, and, and changed to medicine but I've, ever since I've had this kind of background fascination with the stars and um, have been uh, very excited and interested to, to learn about the James Webb uh, Telescope which is an extraordinary scientific achievement and um, it's one of those uh, remarkable things that human beings can do um, in, in that it's a, it's a massive collaborative uh, enterprise between many different uh, individuals and uh, between different nations, uh, huge amounts of money, uh, official government money gone into it. Uh, and it shows just what human beings can do in terms of exploring the the cosmos when they all get together and it's undoubtedly going to give a whole stream of of, of new information about about cosmology about the the universe and be able to see right back to the very earliest phases just after the big bang yeah i was looking on on the the kind of the, the james webb website and it just kind of describes its kind of goals uh, as kind of fourfold um, it's going to search for light from the first stars and galaxies that formed in the universe after the Big Bang. It's going to study galaxy formation and evolution, trying to understand star formation and planet formation, and finally to study planetary systems and the origins of life. So a fairly um, daunting list of, of projects. It's kind of set itself there. And, and obviously it goes way beyond simple kind of astrophysics and cosmology. It, it intersects with with questions about life, the universe, who we are, and, and Andrew, obviously, it cuts into theology as well. Yes, I think there we should put particular emphasis on these explorations of the very early universe, because this does touch upon Christian accounts of where everything comes from. And sometimes we hear scientists saying that because there's some scientific account of the very early moments of the universe this how somehow displaces the idea of god as creator i think that very much isn't the case uh, we could we could talk about that but that's one part of what the space telescopes looking at of course my interest particularly is on the search for other life and here it's going to do at least two important things it's going to massively increase the range of stars that we can look at trying to find planets and it's also going to make the observation of 
those, uh, those stars much more accurate and precise so that we're going to be able to start um, much better than before detecting what gases are in the atmospheres of planets around other stars. And that is our best hope for a kind of telltale, a kind of giveaway about the presence of life. If you looked at the Earth from a long way away, you would see that the mixture of gases in our atmosphere is pretty odd. It's not the sort of combination of gases that you would expect to stick around. Something's obviously affecting the atmosphere and displacing the atmosphere from equilibrium. We know that that's life. And if we see something like that elsewhere, that's going to be our best indication of life elsewhere. Hmm. So is it really a kind of credible possibility that, that at some point in the next kind of 10, 20, 30 years, however long Webb is looking, it might be the kind of instrument that sends us back the first clues that somewhere else in the universe there is a world like Earth that has managed to sustain life? Yes, I think it's the first instrument that has a, a good prospect of being able to do that. And this ability to look at the gases in the atmospheres of planets really shifts things because up till now, I suppose, we'd imagined that if we were going to detect life elsewhere in the universe, it would be sentient, advanced technological life because we would be probably detecting its radio broadcasts. I suppose people think also about, about visits, but um, more likely that we would... Uh, detect uh, electromagnetic waves coming from the planets from something like uh, you know, radio broadcasts. And um, this really shifts it because if we can detect life in the atmosphere, the composition of the atmosphere of other planets, then we're thinking about you know, just a planet that was covered in algae, for instance. It wouldn't have to be uh, technologically advanced at all. So if we think about that in terms of our own planet's lifetime, we'd really be able to detect the presence of technology on Earth for the past, I don't know, 100 years, 150 years, something like that. Um, but we would be able to detect the perturbation of the atmosphere for a billion or two years. Uh, so it really means that we're not looking for this tiny fraction of any habited planets, but for really anywhere life has taken over and is starting to uh, affect the atmosphere. And of course, we, we don't know what the, the proportion of, of any planets that are inhabited are. But the other th thing we should throw into this equation is just how enormous the, the universe is. Um, so uh, about around about 100 or 200 million, uh, do I mean that? No, billion, 200, 100 billion stars in our galaxy, about the same number of galaxies in the observable universe. The number of places where it's possible that there could be life is just uh, incomprehensibly large. And that's immediately a sort of issue, isn't it, from a Christian point of view? Because, uh, you know, in, in Christian history, the first, I suppose, 1500 years of, of, of since the dawn of, of Christian history, had, human beings always saw themselves as, as the centre of the universe uh, and as the centre of God's concerns. And then it seems like there's been this sort of progressive displacement from the centre, first of all, with Copernicus and the the Earth going around the sun, rather, and then, you know, more discoveries about uh, the, the nature of life and and the idea of Darwinian evolution displacing us from being a, a special kind of species, and and then the discovery of the size of the galaxy, and then the fact that there were other galaxies. Everything seems to just point to the insignificance. Of humanity. Is that a, a, a theme that you've wrestled with as a theologian? Well, indeed, that comment has 
been made and it is an important thing for us to address but I think we can get at it from two different angles and one is whether the Christian faith really does put humanity at the centre. On the other hand we can ask whether our location in the universe is really that significant and whether what is so special about human beings really rests on completely different foundation than that. So on the first front um, I think it might sound like a platitude but it's pretty important to say that for Christianity it's God that stands at the centre of everything and in fact placing ourselves at the centre of things is pretty close to the definitive sin, you know, the sin of pride or hubris. So um, then we, we can clearly modify the terms and say, oh well amongst creatures we think that human beings are at the centre of everything and of course that's an important uh, modification. But I I think that it is really important that we say that no, everything is about God and God is at the centre of all things. And as soon as we start getting worried that we're not at the centre of things, then there's something a bit spiritually unhealthy going on there. And the other two things that come to mind on that front, and I'd be really glad to hear what you think about this, um, is the first one is the place of angels in the Christian imagination. Uh, and it almost doesn't really matter whether they do feature in uh, Christian belief today, I mean, they do in mine, but uh, and I think probably that's the, the, the case uh, quite, quite generally. But the important thing is that the Christian vision of the universe has not been one in which human beings are the only intelligent, rational, you know, gl glorious created beings. Um, and I'm not saying for a moment that angels are aliens or aliens are angels, just this question of how we conceive of of our place in the whole. We're not, tra traditionally in much Christian theology, we're thought to be somewhere around the middle. Uh, in fact, theologians have quite liked the idea that God became incarnate as a human being precisely because we're in the middle of things and combine uh, the materiality of one half of creation with the uh, intellectual nature of, of these spiritual beings and we kind of straddle that in the middle. So uh, the fact that Christianity has entertained the idea of angels suggest that we should have space in our imagination for other intelligent things. And I'd also uh, point to the book of Job, which I think one of the great moments in the book of Job is where God responds to Job by just taking him on a sort of safari of, of, the, of the created world, including many creatures that we recognise, planets and constellations and so on, and perhaps some uh, creatures that we don't recognise. But it's absolutely about knocking Job away from the centre. Job uh, is uh, told by God, there's lots of other stuff out there that God has made and that God is interested in. And it would be rude to say, I suppose, Job is put in his place, but there's something like that going on. So I would say uh, the, to think about angels and the book of Job would be a, quite a good way forward. That's really interesting. Uh, it's um, and I, I I absolutely understand what you're saying. It reminds me of an impression when I first read Lord of the Rings and this whole great saga, and it seemed to me that in many ways the hobbits are a kind of a, a representative of human beings, and and you've got all these other wonderful beings and terrible beings and you've got the Ents and you've got you know the, the Nazgul and all kinds of amazing things and then you've got the Hobbits who are very sort of prosaic and just like their four or five meals a day whatever it is and and a pipe of tobacco and so on and yet who turn out to play an absolutely pivotal part in the 
in the entire drama. And, and, and I certainly felt that leading, reading Lord of the Rings. It's just a reminder that, that there are so many other things going on in, in the cosmos and in the spiritual universe that we just don't know anything about. to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. It really fascinated me what you were saying, uh, Andrew, because it, it's there's, there's often this idea, I think it goes back to obviously the kind of famous story of Galileo's conflict with the Catholic Church, that, that some sense kind of space exploration and cosmology is antagonistic to kind of Christian faith. Whereas it seems like what you're saying actually is that our better understanding of the universe and our relative kind of insignificance or our lack of centrality is actually a really useful process for us as Christians because it has kind of dethroned us and and kind of counteracted against that kind of sinful idolatry about placing ourselves as the most important as the most as the most central figures. I think that that question of exploration and Christian support for it and so on is a is a really good. Uh, question. Before I get onto it, I'm just going to address, say something briefly about the other half of this question. So on the one hand, there is this sort of de-centering of the, of the human being. But I think the, the other side of a response is to say, place isn't really that important and size isn't that important. So uh, uh, G.K. Chesterton says somewhere that uh, he thinks that the association of value with size is just basically vulgar uh, and, and stupid. Uh, and um, and I think it, it throws us back to look at human life and say, what is it about human life that outshines all of the stars? Uh, what is it that happens on this planet that is of such extraordinary value? And I would point to you know, love and kindness uh, and the, kind of the, the drama of salvation, uh, human creativity, uh, the, the arts, um, scientific exploration for that matter, uh, that that and within the wider frame of life seems to me a tremendously exalted glorious thing a great gift the christian uh, says received from the hands of god uh, which is i just sim i think simply not erased or devalued at all by the idea that we're not at the center of things or that our planet isn't particularly big or anything like that it seems to me um that there, there are two responses there's a way in which we embrace this idea of um not being at the centre of things, but then we should also push back and say that doesn't mean that all of these things that we celebrate, that we in which we see the image of God, for instance, are actually any less important. So we, we'll talk about ex, uh, space exploration. I I, uh, I do want to do that, but I think it's important to put that other side in place. It raises the question, doesn't it, in terms of creation? But it is why God made it this way? Why? And is that a question which is just above our pay grade? You know, to say, why have this ridiculous profusion of of stars and galaxies? Um, are we entitled to ask that question, or or maybe it's like Job that in the end we're told, you know, who do you think you are to to question me? Well, there's a scientific response to make to that, which is, you need to have a pretty big universe in order for there to be. Uh, prospect of um, of life at all so you'd want to talk to someone more trained in physics than I am to get the absolute detail on this but uh, if you're going to have a universe that 
lasts long enough to be able to get the formation of elements and so on, then you need a certain balance of fundamental constants, and they're going to give you a very big universe. So it sort of comes as a package deal, really. If you're going to have the conditions for life, you're going to have a very large universe. Um, and then from a theological perspective, uh, there's a long tradition of saying that the way in which the plenitude of God is going to be in any way reflected or borne witness to in creation is going to be through multiplicity. So if you have uh, the boundless, infinite God, then obviously creation can't in any way make an exhaustive representation of that. But there's this very deep conviction, you find it uh, beyond Christianity, you find it in Plato, for instance, that there's a sort of um, manifoldness to creation because that is its best best uh, homage, as it were, to the um, to the, the plenitude of God. So, from a, from a doctrine of creation perspective, I think that we are really well set up to expect creation to be varied and variegated and you know multiplicitous. Uh, precisely on those terms. I, I think from the perspective of the doctrine of creation, uh, this, this seems pretty harmonious to me. And one of the things that fascinates me is that in contemporary, in much of contemporary Christianity, obviously one doesn't want to make too much sweeping generalisations, but it, it does seem to me that certainly in a lot of Protestant Christianity, the whole concept of creation, the centrality of creation and the doctrine of creation is very much underplayed and, and, and hence what we're talking about today doesn't seem very central to, to most Christians' preoccupations. I mean, why do you think that is? Why, why has the doctrine of creation been so underplayed in, 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 in Christianity in, uh, over the last century, say? Well, I think you've put your finger on something in saying that it has been underdeveloped or it's not you know, featured in our preaching um, and in our exploration as much as it perhaps did in the past. I think you're, you're right also to say this is something of a Protestant um, gap. Uh, I think that the doctrine of creation is more uh, uninterrupted, receives more attention perhaps in, in Orthodox and um, uh, Catholic traditions. But I would say that happily your comment is also beginning to be a bit out of date, that there is a real resurgence of interest in the doctrine of creation across the board and in those places perhaps where it has been a little bit neglected. Um, and I suppose something that's going on there is the Protestant concern about sin and salvation. And that has just seemed to be so important that other things have, have been pushed into the background. That's understandable. Uh, I think also you've got Karl Barth in the 20th century reacting against natural theology and the idea that one can just read off who God is by looking at creation. Uh, and he, uh, again, there's something of a, uh, I wouldn't say a backlash to that, but the ideas of natural theology are certainly coming back into, Christi into Christian and, and, and Protestant uh, circles. But Barth was onto something. Uh, what we needed in the 20th century, what we always need, is God as revealed in, in Scripture. And uh, he was right, I think, to say, if you just try to extrapolate from uh, from creation, and you just build your own God, which is uh, uh, not a good thing to do. But I think Bart's uh, witness has had its influence, it's done its work, uh, but 
you know, even Bart was very interested in creation, being such a, a truly uh, great, great uh, theologian. And of course, the environmental crisis also is putting the doctrine of creation uh, back on the agenda. So I think that there's uh, really something in what you say, but also already the, quite a strong beginning of a corrective. It's because often, I mean, I'm interested to say whether you ever come across this, but I feel like there is a strain of thought, maybe even particularly strong among kind of evangelical Christianity, which which says, you know, this kind of high-minded scientific exploration is a, is a bit of a sidetrack. And as you say, we need to be focused on saving souls, preaching the word, and keeping very much grounded, literally grounded on earth, uh, you know, the vast sums on the team website couldn't that be spent better on social action or on church planting all that kind of stuff and there's a kind of skepticism of this that there is any real spiritual value in this kind of far-sighted scientific exploration like if you were if you were confronted with that view uh how would you respond briefly well i might say uh, good luck to you trying to get the nasa budget applied to uh, <laughs> church planting um well I would say that there are uh, a couple of questions there. I mean, one is just about the um, the ethical question of what you spend your money on. And I'm not primarily an ethicist, and I think it would be a fascinating topic to you know, to get an ethicist uh, and onto your show and to ask these sorts of questions about the allocation of money. Um, and they're certainly really valid questions. My response would be to say that in the grand scale of things, the money that we spend on science is is relatively small and I think that it is integral to our humanity, integral to uh, our bearing of the image of God indeed, to have this sort of capacity to explore and understand the world. In biblical terms, sometimes been expounded through the naming of the animals by, uh, by Adam that seemed to be a sort of proto-scientific uh, act. So I think there is something theologically th theological to be said about the scientific endeavour as part of what it means for us to be humans and made in the image of God. And way down history, you will find Christian support for science in exactly those terms. So you mentioned Galileo. Uh, he ran into trouble with one pope, but another pope was bankrolling his scientific uh, explorations. Uh, we might think of John Wilkins, who was Bishop of Chester, Master of Trinity College, uh, Cambridge as well, and one of the founders of the Royal Society. And he he asks about life in the universe, uh, he thinks there's life on the moon, and he was responding to that. And he says, well, the scriptures don't tell us about these things because it would just be too interesting and therefore too uh, distracting. So he's a wonderful uh, kind of geeky scientist there, uh, and he knows that he would be distracted if there was too much science in the Bible. So he says, God talks to us about the things that are really important, relationship with him, relationship with one another, sin and salvation. But then doesn't say that these he doesn't say these other things are unimportant he just says god's going to say just get at it yourself yeah i've given you the capacity to explore and reflect upon the world go out and do it and wilkins saw that as integral to what it means for us to be human beings so i agree if we went through some in, enormous uh, economic collapse we'd have to think about how uh, money is being allocated but uh, my, my line on this would be just we should tax very wealthy people more than we do. That will give us more than enough money to respond to uh, humanitarian crises and also uh, to carry on with these scientific explorations. 
Well, it's I mean, all right for an impoverished theologian, isn't it, to say tax the wealthy people? But they, no, I, 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 don't, I have to say I agree too. Well, Cambridge. Uh, anybody with a permanent position at the University of Cambridge is in one of the, is in the world's you know very topmost wealthy people. Uh, we need to recognise that. Sure. I mean, it was a, it was an astronomer, wasn't it? Uh, Kepler, I think, who coined the phrase about you know thinking God's thoughts after after him. Um, and so I guess there has been this strong theme, as you know, about that by, you know, inquiring into science is not some kind of secular ideal, but is actually like a profoundly theological act in, a, in, a, in and of itself, regardless of, kind of the benefits it might we might derive from it. Uh, yes, and uh, I, I completely uh, accept that. I think also on a, a more theological uh, point of view, we, we can't neglect the doctrine of creation because we want to be able to give a, a theologically informed a christian scriptural account of of the world around us so i think the idea that you just you neglect Christ, uh, you reject Christ, uh, creation and just think about sin and salvation uh, even for the most evangelistically minded christian that is to neglect one of the ways in which we have of building bridges to our culture, about helping people to see what it means to see the world in a Christian way. So I think even if someone was being uh, pretty um, ruthlessly pragmatic from an evangelistic or apologetic perspective about where one spends one's time reading theology or whatever, uh, and I would say that's not the only thing that should guide in what where we spend our time but even from that perspective I think giving up on the doctrine of creation would be a mistake. I think something else which really uh, is so wonderful about uh, creation is just the way that it's it gives us this enormous sense of joy and wonder. Just reminded of somebody you said there's only fundamentally three prayers please thank you and wow and it, mm -hmm. it, it's the kind of wow factor and, and the joy of just um, of seeing what the extraordinary beauty, complexity, wonder, profundity of creation, which which must be an integral part of the way that God has has made us to to respond. And and, and therefore, it's a real sadness, isn't it, that so many Christians seem to fail to to recognise that. Well, I, it's not my place to, uh, I don't particularly want to cast it in terms of uh, criticising anybody, but I do think that the idea that that doctrines, that areas of theology can somehow be separated from one another misses a lot of their interest. And fundamentally, Christian thought should hang together. And we should think about redemption in terms of creation and creation in terms of redemption. We should think about beginning of all things in terms of the end of all things and vice versa and I I think at the absolute core of my Christian faith is the is the sense that the world is extraordinary and it comes to me as a gift mm. uh, and mentioned Chesterton again he said uh, a gift implies a giver he had this very strong sense that the world came to him in a gifted way and that implied a giver and so for me, the, the doctrine of creation is just, uh, you know, absolutely integral to everything. 
Well, I think we unfortunately we could talk about this all day, but we're running out of time for today's episode. Um, but we're going to uh, pick up our conversation with with Andrew uh, next week. So um, do look forward to that. Where we're going to be digging a bit more into this idea of astrobiology and and the implications for Christian theology if we do find uh, life elsewhere in the universe. Uh, but thanks very much, Andrew, for being here for this week. Uh, thanks, uh, John. Um, as always, uh, thank you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, you can just send us an email: molad m o l a d at uh, premiere.org.uk um, or uh, there's plenty more resources and things to read and interesting things to listen to on, on John's website that's johnwyatt.com uh, uh, and of course we'll talk about this more next week but uh, do look up uh, Andrew's forthcoming book which is uh, available later this year um, but thanks very much everyone thank you very uh, much for we'll... having me and I look forward to speaking next week Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. At a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information.